Hi, everyone. On our podcast this week, we're so pleased to welcome author Emily Pfeiffer, who is the author of the new memoir, The Running Body, where she shares her experience transitioning from a top high school runner to a collegiate distance runner at Ohio University, where she began to run more while eating less. Many around her, including her coaches, praised her for these practices. But as she became faster and as her body began to resemble the bodies that she had seen across starting lines and on the covers of running magazines, unfortunately, her bones began to fracture. Emily shares in her memoir the story alongside the stories of her teammates, competitors, and others as they all faced body troubles while running on this team. Emily wrote the first drafts of The Running Body while an MFA student at the University of Wyoming. She then went to Syracuse University, where she is currently a writing teacher and a doctoral candidate. Emily can be found on Instagram at Emily D. Pfeiffer, and her beautiful memoir can be found on Amazon or wherever books are sold. This is a wonderful book, and we are so excited that we had the opportunity to talk with Emily about why and how she wrote this very important memoir. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. Have a great week. Emily Pfeiffer, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Um, We are so excited to welcome you. We are always excited when authors come on our show. And I told you, I finished your book in like one sitting. Coincidentally, I have to share the story. The the day that I received your book in the mail, and thank you so much for that, our power went out um, for hours because we live in an area outside of DC where a plane was stuck in... um, a tower. And as a result, the power was shut off for most of our area for about six hours. Did you happen to see that on the news? I'm not no, sure if you did. No, I don't think so, but, but it yeah, was what a basic, silver lining. <laughs> right. So it was a small plane. Thank God the pilot and passenger are okay. But our entire area lost power um, in order for um, rescue to be able to get up there, those first responders, and rescue the pilot and passenger out of plane. Such a random story. But Emily, we lost power, and I just powered through your book. It was such a pleasurable read and just a fantastic book, and I'm really excited to get started today and talk about it. So first of all, could you introduce yourself to our listeners and talk a little bit about um, how you got started running? Yes. Well, number one, I'm glad everything, everyone is okay. Um, and everything worked out and that's the perfect conditions I think to read a book, because as we all know, it's so hard to focus. I mean, I, I struggle with this. I feel like everyone does. It's so hard to focus on reading when we have so many like distractions. And so it almost sounds, um, like a treat to me to not have power for a while and just to sit with a book that sounds so nice. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Emily Piper. I um, was um, born and raised, um, I was born in West Virginia and raised in Ohio. And I actually think I did my, um, my first race when I was still living in West Virginia. We have a little, we have a picture of me doing it. And beyond that, I can't remember. Um, but I think I was around seven or eight and my mom was doing um, this 15 mile race in uh, Charleston, West Virginia. It's really a hilly race. I think it's called the Charleston distance run. So if anyone lives in um, the area, 
you should look that race up. I think it's really challenging and hilly. Um, but that was my first race. Um, and then I didn't start running again until middle school when we moved to the Columbus, Ohio area. And a friend said, um, do you want to run cross country? And I had no idea what she was talking about. I think I vaguely thought it was like something skiing related, which I have never done, but I was like, <laughs> sure. Um, put my name on the list when um, when the coach came to the signups, um, to do signups at school and um, started running from there. And I think I fell in love with so many different parts of the sport um, pretty instantly. I, um, yeah. And so then I ended up running at Ohio University um, and wrote a book about my experience largely um, largely during my time as a collegiate runner. And so I know we'll get into that too, but that's sort of my running trajectory and um, which really led to my writing career too. So I see those two things as really intertwined um, in my life. Absolutely. So your book is called The Running Body, A Memoir. And um, this book was released in October, 2022, but I find it interesting you just mentioned that you started writing this book in college. Hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what prompted you to start writing a book before you graduated from college? And um, I believe you graduated, has it been about 10 years? Yes. Yes, that's right. I think a little bit less than 10 years. I think I graduated okay. in 2013. Mm -hmm. So like a running career, it sounds like you took a lot of steps to cross the finish line, but can you talk a little bit about what prompted you to start writing the book in college and then eventually publish the book um, very recently? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, really injury um, was the first time I ever wrote about running. I don't, yeah, I don't think I have anything about running in any of my work before then. I was in a, I was a journalism major and I also started taking poetry and um, creative nonfiction classes. And this was coincided with my first injury. And so during this time, I, my teacher encouraged me um, to try writing about it. And so I had an essay and in a poem, both in these two classes that I was in, um, trying to work through my injury. And I remember I had to, I missed practice um, because I was injured. And a lot of times in college, when you're injured, you still go to practice, you know, and you have to kind of show your face and go to the trainer and do, you know, PT or different things, but I was um, just in such a dark space. I was so lost without running and lost with that sort of removal from my team and not feeling like I was participating on my team. And I just remember there was a day where I emailed my coaches and said, I can't come to practice today. And I sat down with my laptop and typed out this, you know, like probably, um, you know, really emotional piece um, about not being able to run and how upsetting it was. Um, and so I just kind of kept writing about it from there. I would say I took a little break from both running and writing about running after college for um two or three years before I went back to school and to get a creative writing master's. Um, and that is when I started writing about this story again, writing about my relationship to running and my body and the sort of broader culture, sort of broader culture around running. Um, but I think I needed a break from both running and writing, but it was really injury that seemed to open this up for me when I didn't have running anymore I needed some I needed an outlet um, for all those emotions and that pent up you know, energy and feelings and so um, I was so grateful to have writing there for me it, of course doesn't solve everything I think as runners we all really miss running when we're injured um, but it was an outlet for me and that was so important 
So let's unpack that a little bit. So you you touched on the fact that you started running in middle school and obviously had a very successful high school career in Central Ohio, and you ran for Groveport for Canal Winchester High School. Yeah, yeah and right. um and then of course went on to Ohio University, which has a fantastic program. At what point did you start to correlate your success in running to uh, the appearance of your body? So I think the seeds for that were planted in high school. Um, you know, in the book, I write a little bit about books like Once a Runner, where there are these mentions of body ap appearance and size and shape, and they become connected to running. A lot of these books I read about running, I realized now were, they were all about men. And so in some ways, there was like a little bit of a distance between my experience and theirs. Um, but then at the same time, of course, I wasn't really recognizing that distance. And so I was reading about these experiences of these male athletes as if, you know, they were my own or as if I was going to have the same kind of trajectory or experience with my body. Um, so I start, those seeds were certainly planted. And then when I got to college and a lot of college runners talk about this, um, you know, you look down the starting line and you see a very, you know, there's a normalization of a very, very thin body. Um, and I, I hope this has gotten better. I've heard it's gotten better, or I've heard, you know, different stories um, more recently that there's more different sizes of bodies, sizes and shapes represented on NCAA start lines. But when I was in the NCAA um, starting 2010, um, there, it, it was just a really, really dangerous um, visual, I think, for a lot of girls. And as I write about in my book, I think these things are contagious. And you can sort of watch them over the course of the season start to spread on a team. Maybe one day you're lined up and you see one girl on a team and you think, oh, you know, she looks really thin. Maybe she's sick. And then I would watch her, you know, finish up front in a race. And though in my mind, there would be this really close correlation. And because there was no education around what she's doing to her body is not sustainable. Um, what she's doing is dangerous. These are why she's doing what she's doing. There was just none of that education, understanding. And so that correlation between thinness and fastness, you know, to be reductive was, um, it was made in my mind. And um, there just wasn't a lot of ways to disrupt that correlation once it was there. And I think that happened for not just me, but a lot of people on my team and across the NCAA when I was when I was running. So yeah, I, I think it was really college that started to exasperate. And at what point, and we'll we'll touch on that in a minute, but I just want to sort of have the listeners understand your story a bit. So once you made that correlation and in your book, you describe the the proverbial dark path that you went down to sustain a, a weight that you felt would lead you to success. And you did have a lot of success temporarily until you sustain your first injury. At what point did you realize that you were not in a position to sustain the weight that you were trying to maintain? And how did you overcome that when you realized that you would have to make a change? Mm. That is a really, really good question because I don't think it happened for a long time. The, the piece of your question about realizing that I would not be able to maintain that weight, that that typical normalized 
runner's body was not my body and it was not going to work. That was not going to be my fastest, strongest, happiest, healthiest self. Um, even with the first injury, which was a, um, a metatarsal injury in my foot, I, um, I don't think I had any sort of, I, I wasn't suspecting, I, or maybe I was, but I certainly wasn't going to believe that this meant okay, you need to, um, you know, gain a certain amount of weight. You need to get your period back. You need to eat a lot more. You need to be, you need to lower your mileage. You need to probably lower your intensity. That was never in my mind with that first injury. Fast forwarding to the more serious pelvic bone injury. Even then, I think you, I started to realize this is, pro this was probably caused by the combination of not, not eating enough, running way too much. My period had disappeared for years at that point. And so I think I was, I realized I had to be smart enough to realize what this, you know, what this was caused by. They sent me to, um, my program sent me to get a bone scan. It came back saying that I had signs of osteopenia in different areas of my body. And, um, but still at this point, no one, told me I never was Googling on the internet or anything. There was, there was no one who said like, this is why this happened. Um, I was still able to believe myself. And I think I was able to convince other people um, that this was just a normal thing. Like runners get stress fractures and it doesn't raise any red flags. It happens in college. It's just a very accepted thing that this is just going to happen. And maybe on some level it is, but I don't think these really serious bone injuries should just ever be overlooked as just a normal thing. And so it was actually, I think it took probably just a slow accumulation of needing to quit college running, leaving college, um, gaining, gaining my, gaining weight back, becoming more of like my normal, my becoming back into my body and how it was supposed to mature and look, um, getting my period back, honestly starting to run again, trying to run again and still not being able to run, still having all these lingering injuries, still struggling so much with running. And I think just over a number of years, I was able to realize like what you did to your body during that, during the summer that you decided you needed to eat as little as you could and run as, run as much as you could. That's what caused all of those things. And it was like a really slow waking up process. And I think what worries me about not only my own story, but other people's stories is how slow that process is and how often it takes actually having to leave the sport or just take a break from the sport to really realize what you were all, what you got wrapped in, up into when you were so deeply inside of it. And I'm sure there's some people who realize that a lot faster than me, um, but for me, it took a long time. And I think that speaks to how normalized this whole cycle of injuries and um, eating disorders is, um, both I think at the elite level, at the recreational level, um, and just culturally too. Absolutely. And, and while certainly there's so much information out there, thanks to, as you mentioned, Google, and of course, there are so many more coaches um, in the fold that are have a heightened awareness. When someone is doing as well as you were doing during that time on your team and, and succeeding in every way, often a coach understandably will say, well, she's running great. So she's yeah. probably feeling okay. And mm -hmm. so what do you say to um, 
coaches out there who suspect that a runner who is at the top of their game may have an eating disorder, may not be fueling sufficiently. What, what would, what do you wish your coach would have done differently, if anything? And what do you say to coaches out there? Mm. Yes. I really hope that coaches now see and have more evidence or proof or whatever was needed to see that it, it is temporary for most bodies, for most people who have made um, who have made this decision or who have felt like they were forced to make this decision to eat a lot less and to run a lot more. And no matter what the results were at the end of that or during that decision-making process, that it is temporary and that injuries are on the other side. Injuries are awaiting um, something like um, relative ener energy deficiency syndrome, which wasn't really um, vocabulary I was ever aware of in college. I feel like now there's all this conversation about it, which is amazing. Um, but you know, just that crash and burn, like not being able to handle the mileage, not being able to handle the workouts, um, that your athlete's long-term health, I, I think an athlete's long-term health should be the number one priority of coaches, of trainers. Um, I think at the the elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and even beyond that level. I think that long-term health is the most important thing. And I think we, I hear a lot of athletes talking about who had really good experiences in college, talking about saying things like my coach had this really long-term vision for my career. And I think that's so amazing to hear. I love hearing that. Um, and um, our coaches, just did not have that. It was all, it was honestly not even about the next year. It was just that season. It was like, how can we, what can we get out of these bodies this season? And that's what I think prevented them from really being able to even think about like, maybe this is temporary because to them, they might have even known it was temporary or that it could be temporary, but it didn't matter. So I think that's just so important that long-term long -term health. And because it's not just like more ethical, it will make for better running. You know, I think that's just like point blank like if you're not thinking about those things like maybe there's going to be a you know a few amazing races but it's it's not the best thing for the the athlete um holistically so it's like an, to me it should be an easy sell and I hope it is um now even though it wasn't when I was in the NCAA you bring you raise a great point though and that is coaches for any sport, their salary, their jobs depend on an NCAA championship, for example, or having, mm -hmm. having that runner out there that's going in, on the high school level, for example, it's going to be who's a potential All-American, getting them um, out there for nationals, things like that. And often a coach will get wrapped up in it and will be short-sighted because indeed they see this talented runner and they want to be able to, to take that runner all the way. So it, to your point, it takes a very special and knowledgeable coach who's confident in their job and their job security mm -hmm. to be able to have a long-term plan. So to that end, and we ask this question a lot, if you could go back in time and you, let's say you were a high school Emily and you were looking at collegiate programs now, what questions would you ask mm -hmm. about potential coaches for you and what would you look for in a program? I love that question because it really points out that I was asking the wrong thing or paying attention to the wrong thing. So I would have been paying attention to how fast were these women running last season. I would not have been asking anything or paying attention to anything about injuries. How long is the injury list? Um, who's on it? 
how how often do people sort of cycle through injuries, you know, repeatedly getting injured over the course of their college careers. I would also look at um, probably want to talk to people who out of the program just as much as people who are in the program one year removed from college running, two or three or four years removed. And because that gives you the time to reflect on your experience and to um, really have that kind of embodied knowledge of not only what was your experience running in college, but then also what was your experience recovering from running in college? Because people who have healthy careers in college don't need that like I needed like five years to recover from college to be able to run again and so I think that's the sign of the health of a program um and I mean health in a really holistic way in a really broad way of how people are able are are women specifically able to keep running once they get out of that program because that tells something to me about how those um women's bodies are treated and regarded and valued in that program um, so I think those are some of the things that I would definitely look at and in, would have encouraged myself to pay a lot more attention to while I was looking at programs and just trying to understand that it wasn't, a, it's not about actually how fast I was going to run in college. That was my main concern when I was looking at schools, how fast can I go in college? And I really wish I would have um, put that aside and thought about how fast and just how much can I enjoy running? How long can I enjoy running past college, beyond college? Because college running, any, any, any collegiate sport, you know, should not be your end point as an athlete. I think that's where the danger zone is um, for a lot of athletes, at least it was for me. I think that's a great point. Um, there are a lot of collegiate sports where there is no place to go after college, of course, but running is a sport that one can do for the rest of their lives. So you bring up a great point, which is college is just a small blip on the continuum of running. If you look at yourself and perceive yourself as a lifelong runner. So the key is not just looking at the coach, but also having a runner who's looking at programs consider, well, what do I want out of this that I can keep running for the rest of my life? And that's hard for a kid looking at schools to think about. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up so much is because it is also applicable to looking for a coach in general. Once yeah. you are a full, full on adult and you want to improve your running and set a goal, the points you bring up are also important when looking for a coach. It's not just about the results that a coach um, is able to get for their runner, but also how does the coach handle injuries, body changes. And mm -hmm. so you bring up some great points. My next question though, is about how were you able, once you came to terms with the fact that your body wasn't working well because you weren't eating enough, how were you able to make those meaningful changes? Because that is something I truly admire that you did because a lot of folks struggle with that their entire lives, and especially those who are athletes and, and want to sustain the level that you were running at. How were you, how are you able to continue running? Cause I assume you're still running and also uh, feel your body appropriately. Mm -hmm. Two things come to mind with that question. One um, is that it took a long time um, years and years. And I think, um, where I'm at now, I never believed would be possible where I have, um, 
just this relationship with food that is um, very unobsessive. I'm able to just focus on eating enough and feeling my body, but really not thinking about it beyond that. And um, I guess this isn't, this is a little going beyond your question a little bit, but I would say sort of the next step for me as an athlete is being able to um, maybe bring a little bit more attention back to my fueling, um, maybe working with someone like a nutritionist to make sure that I'm eating enough of all the different things that I need. Where I'm at right now is just like, I don't really even want to think too nitty gritty about that yet. I just want to make sure I'm eating enough. And so that's sort of where I'm at right now. Um, but so, but the other thing I would say is that I think I also got lucky. I don't know if luck is really the right word for it, but um, I think that for a lot of people and for myself, there's, you know, another world in which I would have had to um, get treatment. I could have, you know, continued getting bone injuries. There's so many things that could have gone so much worse for me and where I was at. Um, and so I really do attribute it to luck or just a blessing that I was able to um, come out on the other side of this. And I think it was that really long break from running years and years. I'm not exactly sure how many years it really would have been. And it wasn't that I wasn't running at all. It was I was maybe running, um, you know, a couple of times a week, like three miles when I would run something like that, like very, very low mileage, sometimes just as like a social thing, or just when I was on a hike, maybe I would throw in some running. And so I was really taking that impact off of my body. And I was doing all these different sort of steps to get to where I am now. Like I write about in the book, a phase where I was going to the gym and lifting. And though I realized that lifting was not going to be, you know, my like secret miracle healing thing, um, because I was still connecting lifting to like changing my body and the way it looked, but it was this like stepping stone to realizing that I could get strong, I could feel strong, and I could do that without running, and I could do that without losing weight. And another thing was like getting rid of all the scales that I was a I was around or in my house, and totally stopping even thinking about that number. Um, even today, when I go to the doctor's office, it, it's such a weird thing to like see a scale and I just tell them or, you know, sometimes they already know about my, my history with eating disorders and experiences with that number. And I usually look the, you know, they let me look the other way or we don't take my weight if I need to. And so all these like little things that happened over time that were signs of getting better, of healing, of recovery, I really started reading a lot and began to have a more political understanding of um the systems placed on people's bodies, women's bodies um, in particular that, that make us feel like we need to be smaller. And these are like really long historical um, structures that we are all caught inside. And learning about that history um, was really helpful for me for understanding, um, not just from a running perspective and why runners think that they need to be as lean as possible, but also why as a woman, I think I thought I needed to be as thin as possible. And so it was like all these educating myself, giving myself a lot of time, stepping away from the sport, all of those things were necessary for me. And sometimes I, sometimes I will admit, I look back with longing, like, you know, I missed, like, I missed however many years of running. Like I, I think about how fast could I have been running then? What if I would have started doing half marathons then or marathons then? What if I was would have been able to keep running? Like that would have been so wonderful. Sometimes I can still romanticize it, but 
I stopped myself because I really needed that time. I really needed to step away from the sport. I think for me, um, meeting my partner who is not a runner, who has a, you know, I'm putting it in quotes, normal relationship with food, but who never had any, um, he was never restrictive. He never, he doesn't assign any morality to like a cheeseburger. Um, and that was really transformative for me. Um, and doing things like journal therapy, um, just, just little things that I did that became really big things. And that all added up to me being able to start running again in a way that was totally different than before. I think I have a fully different relationship to running. I would say like 85, you know, there's 15% of my running that I still have to be careful about. I have to sort of check myself. Um, just this last week, I was telling you, like it was my brother's wedding and I plan to do a long run the day after my brother's wedding so that I would maybe get to a certain amount of mileage. And it just wasn't happening, you know? And I was fully accepting of that where several years ago, I would have forced myself to do it and probably gotten sick or maybe, you know, came up with a little injury or something because I just didn't sleep enough the night before. And so that's just an example of like how long it has taken me and how I still have to check myself um, and really make sure that those thoughts that are like so learned, oh, I need to hit the certain amount of mileage that I don't let my behaviors reflect those thoughts. It's really, really impressive, Emily. I feel like there are so many people who are so evolved in so many ways, except for that issue, the issue to describe, which is the societal pressure for women to feel that they need to be smaller. Mm -hmm. And um, that really resonates with me because the way you wrote your book, you kind of separate, it's, it's beautifully written, your body from your mind. You talk about your body as if it's almost a separate entity. And in a way that it, and I don't, I don't know if this was intentional, but you sort of remove the self-blame saying, I did this. No, this is a, as you mentioned, the politis, politicizing a body in your phrase and causing you as the mind to sort of shape that body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, I think to your point, the fact that you were able to come out of it on the other side is, was part of this, um, the remedies and the tools you used was part of it, your ability to sort of separate self-blame and say, this happened to me, but it's not something I did to me. And these are the tools I need to use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better myself. Like understanding the, whatever word we want to use, like the narrative, my body was caught inside the political structure, the story, um, just the experience that I had was in a lot of ways, it was an external experience that I got caught up in, that I had learned all these things um, from the broader culture, from the, the running culture, and that while I made decisions and played a role and could have done things differently, in that situation, I didn't have a lot of power over my body. I didn't have a lot of agency. Kids are so people who go to college are so young. I think about this all the time because now I teach students who are freshmen in college and I, it was, it was healing for me to see how young um, we are at that time and how there are so many people who have power over us and our bodies and our minds. Um, And it's so easy depending, you know, especially depending on what situations we're in to get caught up in decisions that aren't fully ours to start um, developing habits or practices that aren't really 
um, ours, but they're learned. And I think it takes so long, so long to unlearn those things. But then part of that, as you're saying, is realizing um, where you, it's not placing blame, but it's just realizing like where, what your body and mind got caught up in and how you can use that to kind of um, see your way out of it because it's not you. It, it wasn't, wasn't this thing that you like had to do. It's not a part of you. Like starting to no longer identify with those choices I made in college were really important. Like I'm not a runner with disordered eating. I'm not a runner who starved herself in college, you know, like I did those things, but that doesn't have to be something that I identify with. It's certainly part of my story, but it's not like the end of my story as a runner, um, which kind of goes back to just thinking about like any stage we're in as runners is not the the end, like even a marathon cycle, a um, any kind of training cycle, any kind of injury, maybe it's, you know, a high school runner, whatever it is, like if we want to run or just like enjoy movement, whatever that might be our whole lives, like we just can't identify with whatever moment we're in too strongly, even though as I'm saying that, I'm like, I, I did that in college. And that's sort of why I went down this path of um, making decisions that reflected that mindset of, I need to be as fast as possible right now. Um, because, 18 year olds don't have that long perspective, at least I didn't. So I can't really blame myself. I can't really blame myself for having like the short-term thinking because we're just not made to think about ourselves at 30, 40, 50, like, like I am now. So I think a lot of it is maturity and giving student, giving students in college, giving, giving any runners the tools to understand what decisions that they're making and um, why they're making those decisions or why they feel like they need to make those decisions. Absolutely. So you you obviously are running for the long haul. And now that you are in your 20s, late 20s, um, I'm actually you? 30. Oh, I'm you're 30. 30 now. Yeah. Yeah. Young 30 year old. <laughs> um, where do you see yourself? If if anything, do you have any plans over the next 10 years now that you've overcome this hurdle and now that you're back to running? Do you want to set goals? Are you happy running? Um as one of your many tools to just living your best life? Mm -hmm. I'm very cautious with my running goals. I, um, because it's almost like I'm dipping my toe into them. I have run a couple of half marathons in the past year. And those were really fun and really rewarding. And they showed me what I, and I haven't got any bones recently but because of what I was able to get my mileage to which isn't as much as I ran in college but they showed me that most likely my bones have strengthened from the time off from feeling myself like this is this is what I feel is true even though like I said you know it hasn't been medically proven but I really feel like I have regained my strength and my health um which is an amazing thing to sort of build on and I would love to run marathons one day as when I was in college, I, you know, I guess I, even as I'm saying, oh, I was so short-sighted, I did see myself as being a marathoner one day. And I was like, I, I think I can do that. Like, I just have that like grittiness, you know? And so I think that would be amazing, but I, even as I, I'm going to tread really lightly. And I think it's also about just like lowering expectations. Um, whenever we're getting back into anything, I think, um, but especially like these big, scary goals and just trying to lower my expectations. And the word that came to me a lot when I was training for um, a half last year was curiosity. 
Like, I just want to be curious about what might happen here rather than assigning, you know, this really specific thing. And what was wild is I actually ran five minutes faster than what I thought that I would in the time that I trained for. Um, like, you know, all my, all my race pace stuff was at this particular time. And then my race was five minutes faster. And I was like, wow, like I had no idea what I was capable of. And that was so fun. Um, and so I just want to kind of keep going into it like that. And I think the marathon is so attractive because I'm like, I have no idea. I, I've ran 19 miles one. That's the longest I've ever run, at, you know, in one time. And so it's like for a lot of first time marathoners, it's like this unchartered territory. And so I think in the next three to four years, I would like to just kind of continue to build that strength and that mileage to feel like I can run a strong marathon, but without putting a specific time goal on it. Like I'm not a real runner if I don't run this specific pace or this specific time. And so I think it's still, yeah, still working on always checking myself, making sure that I'm going about things in the most healthy way that I can, but also like really trying to have fun with it. And for all of us, like using our gifts, whether that gift is speed or just enjoyment of running. Um, I think there's so many gifts that come from running and that we offer um, through our running that are so unattached to like how fast did we go. And so I think really learning that and feeling that um, has been really important and fun. And I want to be able to carry that spirit into whatever race I'm training for. That sounds like a great plan. Lisa and I have often said that to our runners, especially runners who are a little bit more fixated perhaps on a, on a specific time or qualifying for Boston. Yeah. It's, it's okay to care about your times, of course, but if you can go about it in, from a place of curiosity to say, how, how fast can I go, especially post-injury and and, and understanding that your body may not perform exactly to what those race pace calculators indicate always. Mm -hmm. So being able to go for it and say, I want to enjoy the process and, and come out of this understanding um, that I had a question, I wondered what I could do. And here's my answer versus putting pressure on yourself. It's a wonderful way to approach it. And to that end, how do you balance in training, even coming from it from a place of curiosity, given that your passion for running led to be to causing you to not be able to feel enough, which led to injury? How do you check yourself and say, okay, this is healthy passion versus this, this is getting into that zone that I want to avoid? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it is that, um, so the thoughts for me, they still do crop up sometimes. The thought of mm, maybe if I just ate a little bit less, I would run faster in my workout tomorrow, or I would run a faster race. Or I often find too, thinking about what I'm going to wear on race day can be a little bit of a trigger for me. Or thinking about race photos. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has this experience where you're like, you know, just thinking about what those photos are going to look like or Oh, for sure. Those race yes. photos can be so oh, brutal, right? I know. Especially at the end of a race. <laughs> I know, like terrible, terrible. And um, yeah, things like that are like thinking about um, just those old thoughts. They come up thinking about, oh, I, I can't miss this run because if I miss this run, then I'm not going to be able to hit my goal time or I'm not going to be able to hit my paces or um, if I don't hit a goal you know, pace on a workout, thinking that that means something, not just about me as a runner, but me as a person like that, those thoughts that um, are really like, sort of like a lingering sickness, um, a lingering obsession, those still sometimes crop up for me. And I think it's just meeting those thoughts with 
grace and compassion, but also recognizing that I don't need to attach myself to those thoughts. And most importantly, that I don't change my behaviors. So um, that's like a something I've been really careful about. I've really paid attention to. Um, and just thinking, just as an example, if I, if I have a thought crop up, something about needing to restrict my food in some way, as long as I am able to to not, you know, not pay attention to that thought or um, not like attach myself to it and still make myself a really nourishing lunch and a really nourishing dinner and wake up the next morning and do, do it all over again, then I know that I'm going to be okay. As long as I'm able to cut my long run short when um, I feel an injury coming up, even though I still, still sometimes have that thought of like, you have to do this. Like your Strava has to show this perfect round, beautiful number at the end of the week. Um, or you're just not, you're not a real runner. You're not a good runner. You're not going to hit your goal time. I, I still let myself have those thoughts, but I just really, really try not to let my behaviors reflect them. And I find for myself, when I don't let my behaviors reflect the thoughts, the thoughts usually go away. And, um, I'm able to disprove them, you know, with a, with feeling strong on a run, regardless of whatever time I ran or how, how fast I ran. I think just feeling that those thoughts are not real or that those thoughts are not mine or they don't mean anything, having proof by listening to my body um, is really important. So it's that connection between thoughts and actions that I'm like, I'm careful of because I don't think I'm ever going to rid myself of those thoughts. I don't think many of us are able to because of what we were talking about with this structure, these structures we're stuck inside. And so I think it's okay to have the thoughts, at least for me, it's just the actions that I'm careful with. I love that. And I think um, having the confidence after having those thoughts, suppressing the thoughts and saying those aren't true and then succeeding and running half marathons and feeling great about your accomplishment and understanding that a, not a perfect training cycle will still yield a wonderful race is really important. And it sounds like you did exactly that. Um, what do you, what I love about your book is that it's drastically different than some, a lot of the messages that we see on social media. Lisa and I talk about social media a lot because, because we are coaches, we are runners, a lot of our feed on Instagram and, um, we, we both aren't on Strava, but so I'll just talk about Instagram are other runners. And a lot of the messages are actually very positive, very healthy, but there's a lot of uh, false narratives out there. And a lot of runners with big followings who provide a lot of information that when you put it into practice actually won't yield the same result as what that runner is claiming. And I just want to ask you, what, what do you see if you are on social media and, and what do you hope that your book being just the opposite of that will will do for that to combat some of those combat some of those false narratives. Mm -hmm. oh, so important. I think about this all the time. I think about even my I don't follow a ton of runners for this exact reason that you're describing and I it's almost like that thing where you'll follow someone for a couple of weeks and then you're like Mm, there's something that there's something not making me feel good or not feeling right about this. And then I unfollow and I do that a lot. Um, and I think it is just that social media is when we look at a post or even a long caption, we're really only getting a fraction of someone's whole experience or whole story. And um, there is, you know, there's like a uh, currency to this. There's a currency to um, 
to getting a lot of followers on social media. And so people are motivated to do that. Even professional runners are told that they need to have these large social media followings. And I think um, I just said the other day, I'm so glad that social media was not around when I was in college. I would have been a lot worse. I think seeing, I had to, I had to look up and I think I described this in the book at one point, looking up different professional runners so that I could see pictures of their bodies. I can't imagine being a young girl in high school and being able to follow all these professional runners who have been running for decades and decades and um, often have the, the particular body that um, was really dangerous for me to see and to be exposed to and to think that I needed that. And so even when people have really good intentions they just want to share about their lives share about their running um i just think all those images can be really damaging for people who are vulnerable to them i think some people probably aren't but i would put myself in that category too and i have to, i still have to be careful with who i follow how often i'm looking at pictures of these really um thin hard you know, stereotypical fast running bodies. Um, I think it can be really damaging. And I don't say that to say that professional runners shouldn't post race photos of themselves. I definitely don't feel that way. I think it is just something that a lot of people, myself included, have to be really careful with. And I, um, yeah, I, I wish I like had more of like a way forward through that because like I said I wouldn't ever say people shouldn't post pictures of their bodies or anything like that um, I think it's just the accumulation of a, of a particular type of body that becomes dangerous and so I think just being really careful um, about what we're seeing and just trying not to follow things that are dangerous for us and I think what my book speaks to or that I hope it speaks to is just um, how damaging or how influential those pictures can be and what can happen from them and then also just preventing like a fuller story of um, a running career from from the highest highs and the lowest lows. And I think people like often we're starting to really get more storytelling from the running community um, at all different levels. And I think that's a blessing of social media or such a pro of social media, like being able to get these really long captions and being able to have people tell their stories. I think it is just the images that can be really damaging. And I think, um, I don't know. I don't have a, like a solution for that because we're in, it's an image driven Instagram is an image driven platform. Um, so how do we how do we deal with that in the running world? I really don't know. I all I know is like I think it's really I think it can be really dangerous. I, I mean, the only solution I that comes to mind for me is more representation, making sure right. that folks out there with body a variety of different shapes and sizes are represented on Instagram as much. And, and partially that is the curator's responsibility to look at what, what you're following and saying, do I have a good representation or I'm, am I only following certain folks and why? And, and to that end, also in the professional running and collegiate running community, uh, now that there is more information out there, it is my hope that there will continue to be better representation of, of different body types and how those different body types can still yield incredible results. And I think there's there's a few people out there, like one person who comes to mind for me is Nell Rojas. She yeah. is a, a strong runner, one of our top runners and mm -hmm. top American finisher. I believe she was the top American finisher at the New York City Marathon recently. 
uh-huh. and, uh, Boston. Boston. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At Boston. Sorry. And she, her message is so clear. Like she took off many years of running and um, did triathlon and, but has always integrated a lot of strength training. And as a result is a very strong runner, a healthy runner, and still, I mean, yielding these fantastic results. And for some runners, this is their natural body type. It's, it's no, no shade on anyone. A, A body is a body, but to your point, not every top runner has to have the same body. And Mm -hmm. that's something you talk about in your book a lot. And it's important to recognize that there just, there needs to be more representation of what that looks like and what a top runner can look like. And it doesn't always have to be the same body shape to be Mm -hmm. that top runner. Mm -hmm. Um, That also comes from back to your point, knowledgeable coaching and coaches understanding that girls need to go through puberty and their times may slow down temporarily when that happens. But if the coach can hang on and help that athlete get through puberty in a healthy manner and, and, and with an understanding that when they come out on the other side, they can continue building and building and run stronger. So to that end, you're someone I feel that would be an excellent coach. Have you ever thought about coaching yourself? I have. I think about it a lot. I'm in a PhD program right now, so I'm on this academic path. Um, but I always have it in the back of my mind and I know that I'll, I really believe that I will like coach in some capacity someday because I just feel like I have so much knowledge and, um, you, at some point you just want to share it and you just kind of want to be that person. It's almost like I haven't ever done this kind of therapy, but you hear people kind of talking about like your inner child or like, what would you say to your child self, um, you know, in order to make them feel better or things like that. And I'm almost like, I want to work with younger people so that I'm not just speaking to my like child self. I'm actually speaking to and helping and guiding people who are at those younger stages of their careers, um, which like I said, are such vulnerable stages. And I, I think there's a lot of people who've had my experiences who are coaching now or who are so knowledgeable um, about these issues, even if they haven't experienced them themselves. So I think that it's not like, oh, the world really needs me to coach or anything like that. I think it's just that like, we need people who are knowledgeable about these things and who are really compassionate and who, like you're saying, um, speaking about Nell Rojas, um, who actually is a coach now that I'm just thinking of it too. Um, but people who um, just have a really who have a broad understanding of the diversity and variety of bodies that can be fast or can run far or who can enjoy running and just being able to honor that when we're coaching. And um, also, I'm also thinking about at different levels of coaching, I think especially college, not just valuing and prizing the fastest, thinnest bodies, especially if those two things are correlated on a team. I think that can be really dangerous. Um, And so valuing and really showing that you value as a coach, all the different runners on a team for different reasons. I think that's so important and something I didn't experience in college. And so I think there's just, there's so much room for, um, for better coaching. I think, especially um, probably at all levels. I was going to say, especially at the NCAA, but I'm really, that's something I'm really hopeful for. I think that's something that um, I've seen change. I've like heard a lot of talk about change and I'm really, really optimistic about the impact that coaching can make, even if we aren't able to 
um, change, you know, the really broad cultural messaging around eating and fitness, et cetera. Me too. Absolutely. So before we, we stop our conversation, which has been so enlightening, I have two additional questions for you. The first is, what do you hope your book will bring to the running community? And my second is, um, where can people find you and where can people purchase your amazing book? Wow. I, it's so interesting when I wrote this book, I never really asked myself that question because it was too intimidating to me. Like what can this book bring to the running community? It would almost just make me, yeah, just made me too nervous or something. Um, but I think just, we need more stories, um, not just from people like me, but I think we just need to have these more full stories of running experiences. Um, I just finished um, Allison Mariella Desir's Running While Black. And um, Great so book. that book is like, yeah, really in my mind right now and thinking about her experiences um, as a Black runner and as well as the different stories that she tells. And I think that there's a lot of other stories being told right now, whether it's on Instagram. Um, there's a documentary that came out about a college runner called Believe. I hope I don't get it wrong. I think it's called Believe in Me, um, about a college runner and her experiences um, with eating disorders. Um, maybe I can find that to you and send you the link um, or something like that. But I'm I'm starting to see more stories. And I think that's the really important thing. And what I hope that my book does and that all a lot of these other stories do is just kind of cut through the noise and show runners that they're are um, other paths forward that they can take and also just understanding the people who have experiences like them and that you're not alone in the struggles that you may be having as a runner, whether it's because of injuries or eating disorders or because of an experience you're having running because you're a person of color or because you're in a larger body. I, you know, I think it's just the more stories and more kind of relatability and connection we can make in the running world is really going to be so helpful um, and is um, another thing I'm really optimistic for. So yeah. Um, so you can find me, I have a website, just emilypeifer.com. And then I'm on Instagram at Emily D. Pfeiffer. My last name is P-I-F-E-R. Um, yeah, those are the kind of the two main places that I'm at. And um, yeah, and I guess too, I'm on Strava, but I don't think, um, I don't know if my, I think my account is private on Strava, but you can probably find me on there too. <laughs> All right. And then your book can be purchased anywhere. I know it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and um, I would assume also if possible at uh, small independent bookstores, which is always the best place to purchase a book if possible. Yes. But Emily, it's been such a pleasure. You truly are a champion. Um, I so admire everything you've accomplished and no doubt will continue to accomplish. And your students are very lucky to have you and best of luck as you continue to pursue your PhD. And I look forward to more books in your future. <laughs> I will certainly be reading them. You're an excellent writer and congratulations on your debut novel. It's really wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much, Julie. And, you know, for all the work that you you and Lisa do on the podcast, I think it's so awesome and so helpful, like for me, when I was getting back into running too, almost like reintroducing myself to the sport and having like this totally different lens on it than I had before, um, yeah, listening, listening. To, to all the different people that you talk about and you too as coaches. Um, it was like, I had new coaches all of a sudden. I'm always looking for that. I'm like, how many coaches can I bring into my life? You know? Um, so thank you so much um, for having me. It was so nice to talk. Thank you so much. That was so nice to hear. Thanks, Emily. And we'll talk soon. Thanks okay, for coming thank on our you. show. Take care. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.